from secular communities, empowered by reason and connected by compassion. This is the Oasis Network Podcast. Thank you for including me in the program today. I appreciate it. This is my first time to be here. Um, I've actually referred people to you, and uh, I remember seeing the story a number of, when the, unit, when the Kansas City Star was alive and had actually a section. There was a story about Casey Oasis, which is how I heard of it. It's great to be here. I'm a historian of religion, so um, um, that's, where I, that's how I look at things and have studied basically Asian and many other religions. So I want to let you know that's my perspective as a historian. I don't spend a lot of time talking about what the truth is. I talk about what people do with it, with what they think it is, and how they try to define it. So understand those are my limits. Now, just, just because I'm a historian, someone defined a historian as someone who rushes madly into the future looking into their rearview mirror, that's not exactly how I do it. I, uh, I like to, I'm a cultural critic, and so a lot of what I do centers around that. And I like to ask the historical question, why? Why do people get stuck? So I wrote a book called Scared Straight, which is about why are people stuck on the gay issue when we've been discussing this. And it's basically all been settled for 50 years, uh, half a century, for most science. And then my most recent book, When Religion is Addiction, was to ask me, why are people stuck on this? Because you know, when you try to discuss with certain people, um, religion trumps anything, and there's nothing else that's going to change them at all. <clears throat> and so dealing with them is sort of like doing an intervention for uh, someone who has not been in a recovery group. And so that's, that's my approach. I want, you, I want to be very aware of this and so on. Chuck, I appreciated what you said. Uh, to me, life is supposed to be a journey, not a tour. And religion can make life into a tour. If, we're, if it's Tuesday, we'll be in Belgium. If it's, if it's Wednesday, we'll be in France, you know. And it tells you where to go and what to see. Whereas a journey is like walking down a path in the woods. You turn the, turn the corner and you might come into a bear or you might see a beautiful waterfall. And to me, healthiness is that. And it also means that we're never going to know. We're going to look back on that journey and say, gee, I'm in a different place than I was 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And that's just how life is. And that looks to me healthy as opposed to what we often find being told to us by religious people. Um, I'm talking about uh, government support for religion. And again, I want to know the why of that. Why are people, why do people want government support for their religion? And uh, the religious right wing uh, will continue to seek government support, government enforcement of their religious views as long as they can. So we're just going to have to be aware of that. We've seen them trying to do it ever since the rise of what was called the uh, uh, Christian Coalition with Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell and so on, and it continues to be that. And I want to ask why. Why would anybody seek government support for their religion? And certainly their, their founder, if we go, can go by what's in the, in the text, didn't seek government support at all. But that doesn't mean they follow their founder. Something else is going on. And so I like to talk about how people use religion, how people use religion. Hence, it has the same idea as how do people use wine or drugs or whatever. These things can be good when used in a certain way, in a healthy way, but they can also, there's a difference between 
having a glass of wine, which doctors say is good for your heart, and being a wino. And so what I like to look at then is how people use reality, because if I get stuck in the discussions of religion, and I do all the time, I get stuck in something that never gets down to what their real issue is. So, for example, if they might say to me, I wouldn't be against gay people, but God's against gay people. So I have to be against gay people. You see that thinking? In other words, I'm really a nice guy. It's God who's the rat. So it ends up with God being blamed for everything, or the Bible, or tradition, or, or history, or an institution. Tradition's an interesting one. Because tradition means you pick from history what you like and leave out what you don't like, right? Cockroaches are traditional. They have been in homes since there have been homes. We may not want to admit it, but they've been around since the dinosaurs. But no one ever argues that traditional family values includes having a bunch of cockroaches in your house. So that's how people pick and choose from history what they like, and that's what they show you. See, it's traditional. So that's kind of, uh, those are the kind of things. I want to know why. Why do that? Now, the right wing has come to the place now where it just can't meet in its churches and it just can't get, a, get its high of righteousness from the churches. So as any kind of addictive thing, you have to go for something even higher. You have to up the ante of the addiction. And so what happens then is where they've upped the ante has been in politics. It's been in politics. Because if I want to feel good about myself, there are a number of ways I can do that, all of which are unhealthy, and one of them is get the government on my side. The more, the merrier. So the religious right wing is going to continue to seek government enforcement of their religious views as long as they can get away with it. And church-state separation means little to them. It basically means that they're convinced that the U.S. was always meant to be a Christian nation, and that's Christian by their definition, right? This is where they are. An historical argument doesn't get through to them. They have their own pseudo-historians, and they have their own that do just plain bad history, but it's in their favor. And they also have their own sectarian publishing houses, that'll publish this pseudo-history. And they want to ignore the fact-based historians. And they write that off for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, we have a president now who writes anything off that disagrees with him as fake news. When we respond, kind of our first response is, how can they do this? It's unconstitutional. We fail to recognize that they've intentionally packed the Supreme Court and the lower courts with those who agree with them, and that it's these very human justices that will define for us what is in the Constitution, what is constitutional. They're very human judges, and not oftentimes not very good justices. So it won't fit with some nice ideal in our head. And so only if a majority of voters stand up, take responsibility, and vote will this trend change that we're talking about. Since there's big money, among right-wing sectarianism. It's also going to require politicians with guts who aren't afraid of the highly vocal sectarian religious right-wing 
where it's well-funded media spin, where it's absolutist blather. Now, what makes this call for government enforcement of their religion so dangerous is that it's actually based on their fear. It's a fear-based reaction of unbelief, not belief. They are not comfortable, and so they don't have a comfortable faith in some effective divinity they tout. Now, of course, those who see government as a solution, as they do, to their unbelief will deny that it's unbelief. And they'll interpret those things they adore as their authorities, scriptures and so on and so forth, to justify their trust in government. So you pick and choose from their books and their histories. That's how it is. The Bible is a great smorgasbord. And you can pick and choose what you want. They'll continue to talk a lot about how their God is actually an active player in national world events. They'll blather on about how all is under God's control. You know that. And yet, they'll show how fearful they are, how uncertain they are about all that they claim to base their lives on by their political activities. Political engagement functions to keep what amounts to an unhealthy religious addiction alive for them. The message they promote is based on fear. Purporting to be victims, they'll claim the full victim role for all who believe like them. We are being persecuted. We are being, we are being treated badly by all, by all of these things, by society, by culture, by liberals, by everyone is out to get them. And they've learned to play that victim role well. They're sort of like rats trapped in a corner and frightened. And, as and such as a, it's a real well-worn persecution complex. It's worked well throughout history. It scares the addiction of the addicted on and on. The recent construction of religious liberty arguments, you're hearing that now? This is what they're hoping to get to the courts, is firmly based in such a victim role. This argument, they hope, will be effective among their newly seated right-wing justices. And the argument is that they need government protection from the persecution that all the rest of us are putting on them. Turning to government, then, for them is a concession that their God is too small and ineffective. You see that? And then taking the further step, they want to seek government funding for their schools, their charities, their churches. And that's more evidence of their fearful belief, lack of belief. If there's any meaning to the words, by their fruits, ye shall know them, seeking government funding of so-called faith-based initiatives is evidence that the seekers have lost faith in their avowed higher power and substituted government commitments for their own. They don't believe anymore that sacrifice of their own funds for their own good works. They don't believe that. They want to sacrifice every tax taxpayer's funds to do what they're supposed to do, and it was called good works. 
And the right-wing victory in this matter came to fruition in 2001 when George W. Bush started his White House Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives. Then, though they had to picture Barack Obama as a devil, Obama actually ratified Bush's idea by actually conf continuing funding their good works under a new name, the Council for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. And in the usual way of doing nothing new, but acting as if he alone invented it, the current president, in May 2018, courted right-wing believers with the announcement of what he called the Faith and Opportunity Initiative, a new White House office to help faith-based organizations get equal access to government funding. So these government programs then, to fund faith-based programs, enable the decline of their faith in the divine and in, the, in the, what they believe is the Spirit's work within these religious organizations. See what I'm arguing about here? This is a lack of ability to believe that whatever you believe in is going to fix it. Their existence is just proof that those who purport to believe are afraid that their God can't get this done on his own. It's as if those who trumpet the bumper sticker WWJD believe that Jesus said, sorry, gang, we won't be able to fund, feed the 5,000 effectively until we get that grant from the Roman Empire. John Leland, a famous 18th century Baptist minister, actually understood this. He's, he believed it was unbelief. He said, persecution like a lion tears the saints to death but leaves Christianity poor, pure. State establishment of religion like a bear hugs the saints but corrupts Christianity. So he was looking at it the other way. It corrupts both sides of things. But he hit the nail on the head, didn't he? When the government enables religious people to do their good works better, when it embraces them as a bear, the way he said it, it saves religious people from having to sacrifice more of their own treasure for what they believe is true. It saves them from fear that their God is too weak to do things himself. The good works that included making financial sacrifices, both for spreading their faith and helping the needy, the sacrifice that proved the deep level of their conviction and even kept some believers from piling up riches unto themselves are now replaced by government funding. The good works being done are now not their good works, but everyone's, yours and mine, because we're paying for it. And that's what they want. They can give less money so their lifestyles won't suffer too much. They can spend it on bigger homes, gas guzzling tanks, and the pleasures of life. They can again prove Jesus wrong by showing you really can serve God and mammon. And they're saved by all this from facing a most difficult challenge to the level of what they call faith the increasingly harder task of successful proselytizing, getting people to come to them in the first place. The government-funded programs can bring the unbelievers in where the law says they don't have to remove religious art, icons, scripture, or other symbols. I don't know if you know that. So if we're looking for a sign, if you're like me and you think of things historically, if you're looking for a sign of the growing unbelief in our culture, it's not out there or in this room. 
This is the big one I'm talking about. It's the sign that they are working hard to get the government on their side because they cannot believe their faith is going to go anywhere. Unfortunately for us, their response to such a fear of failure is usually that reflected in the marginal notes that a pastor once added to his sermon. As he put it, he wrote, weak point here, pound the pulpit harder. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. That was, that was really good. You, you really present well with that. That must be some of your years of experience. Anybody have questions, you can raise your hand, and I will come around to you. I see two. This is my favorite part, because not everybody agrees with me in the world. Most of the world probably doesn't, so this is just fine. If you disagree, say so. Many European countries subsidize a, a church, and yet the... Um, if anything, their populations are less churched than the United States. Which is the cause and which is the effect? That's really good. And I'll tell you what I think the cause is. I mean, this is historical, and so it just hasn't changed in many places. Except if you have a French Revolution and you lop off the heads of all the priests or something like that, you know. And so really, it's a historical thing. They identified as a tradition, as their national tradition, in the same way that we like to talk about George Washington chopping down the cherry tree. It's that type of level. So people don't go. But one of the fears that these people who want, want government funding and are afraid of is if we get something like universal health care, right? Let's, let's say that. However you want it to happen and whoever you want to do it. If we get something like these countries have, right? You won't need to pray anymore. You can go to the, you go to the hospital free. <laughs> and right now, where you can go bankrupt, you know, we're driving people into bankruptcy over, over all the medical debts. Sometimes all you have is a prayer. So I really believe that one of their concerns is, and they, it gets names like European socialism and names like that. You know, that's what that gets. One of their fears is that the more people who don't have to suffer who are they going to, why are they going to pray anymore? So I think that it is, that the cause is more the economic structure than it is either of those two things. Does that make sense? And, and, I mean, just think of what some people in this, in our culture, they only have prayer left when it comes to their health because they can't afford. What if everybody had it? So I guess if I were running a church, I'd be worried about that too, I guess, if I wanted to keep it going. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Okay. If I don't, sometimes they don't make sense, so that's all right. I was wondering if the Christians could be succumbing to the temptation of Christ in the desert, where the devil tells him, if you bow down and worship me, I will give you dominion over the world. Well, you know, no one has ever said that Bible believers read the Bible. And so what they get is what they've been told. And it's a, very, it's a smorgasbord. And so, you know, I tell my students, the Bible doesn't say anything. 
It's a collection of books. It's a library of books, from even from different cultures and different times. So there are different verses you get to pick, and you pick the one that fits your, what you want to believe. And one of the things I like to do as a historian is I like to write and look at some of those things. I'm not a Bible believer, um, but I like to go back and look at some of those things and tell you, you know, there's a different way to understand them. So nobody, this is really important, there is no such thing as a biblical literalist. Nobody takes all the Bible literally. Nobody. When it says in the Psalms, the mountains ride up and clap their hands for joy, no one is claiming, I don't know if anybody who claims that's about the geography of mountains. So I never call anybody a biblical literalist because when you call them that, you have left out the fact that everybody, everybody, everybody interprets. Everybody interprets. And when you refer to them as biblical literalists, you are giving them the winning hand because you're saying they don't interpret, but everybody else does. So there's a case again where if people paid attention to a lot of these things, they would get confused. And, but you know, you don't want, you don't want anybody, anything to interfere with your, your belief. You know. You mentioned that proselytizing is becoming more difficult for a lot of these churches. Do you think that we are witnessing uh, the last gasp of organized religion, or are the churches going to mutate into new and different religions? That's a good question. I think we're seeing the last gaps, gasp of right-wing religion and its effectiveness. The, all of the polls and analyses say they're going. The, the Southern Baptists, the largest Protestant denomination in America, uh, is their baptisms are going down. And so everything looks like, I don't think we're ever going to get rid of religion, so I don't think it's ever going to happen. But it looks like the more right-wing religion is sort of like, you know these, the movie where the knight is fighting the, fighting the dragon and something like that, and then he stabs the dragon, and then it looks like the dragon's dead, then he turns around, and you know that dragon's going to hit him one more time. You know that? I think we're in that point. So I think we're in a very desperate point with, uh, with this, and I, but I think we are in a change uh, uh, in, in how people are perceiving it. But I don't think that means it's not going to be around. One is it's, it's heavily funded, um, and, and it is, there are, the media is an, is an enabler of that version of religion. And so I think that's going to be, it's the loudest version. You know, it's like, what, what did that one uh, theologian say? Religion is like a swimming pool. The most noise from, comes from the shallowest end. And so I think what we've got is a lot of noise and a lot of media um, and, and some political enabling of that. But I think you're right. I think we're, I think we're at this point where it's most dangerous. We can't turn our back. Because that last sweep of that big tail or that last thing is what we're kind of into now. And the more they feel like they're losing, the more danger it is, the more they have to do to not feel like losers. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think that's where we are. I don't expect it to end for a while. 
I think we're down to our last two questions. Uh, I came from a faith that uh, believed that there was going to be a time in the future where uh, governments attack religion uh, on a very large scale. Uh, have you seen any perceptions of the faith that you've studied where they, they, they're trying to say that's happening now, or are they still biding their time? Well, the biblical stuff is very inconsistent about what end times are supposed to be like. That's the first thing. So they have to try to put these things together, all these different things that don't fit together in some sort of nice and easy form. And many of them believe that, yes, uh, uh, Israel is going to rise up again. And they're very pro-Israel, but, but also anti-Semitic. And because you, you can be pro-Israel and anti-Semitic, and they are. But then the Jews are going to have to convert. See, that's the, that's the piece. And that there's going to be some sort of cosmic conflagration, you know. And so I think they kind of think, many of them, that... Uh, that would be the equivalent of a nuclear war. Fire coming down from heaven, that kind of thing. That's how, that's how they interpret it. But it's very interesting because they fight over it. They fight among themselves. They've got people who, <laughs> pre-millennial, post-millennial, mid-millennial, amillennial. And then if you're pre-millennial, you're pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. And they fight themselves, you know. And so the fight goes. That's why there are a thousand Protestant denominations in the United States, all of them thinking they got the Bible right. You know, sometimes there are one or two churches. So the stories, trying to pull the stories together, you can grab onto a theme where someone tries to pull all these things that don't fit together, and, and uh, that would include... And so the nation of Israel is important to them not because of the Jews, but because of that prophecy they believe that they stick to, that the Israel will return and this type of thing, and so on. I mean, the... the, the American-Israeli American pact is basically right-wing Christians. It's not basically Jews. So, um, yes, that's in there. But that's, again, that's an interpretation by pulling together all kinds of things that had different ideas of what the end times would be and so on. Um. All right, we, I think we have time for one more question. Hi. Um, so I went to a Baptist college, and so a lot of my friends during that time were very strictly Baptist and almost extremist at points. Um, and their excuse for people not following religion or things going against God were it was always free will and the devil is acting in these people. So how do you get them to see past that, that no, I'm not actually occupied by the devil, I just have my own thoughts and feelings? <laughs> you, I'm not big at arguing. I don't argue religion with people. I'm a religion professor, so you'd think I could, but I don't. Because I don't think, I don't think arguing religion... And these kind of things is helpful. And here's my model. I think it's like arguing with someone who's not a recovering alcoholic whether tequila or vodka is better for you. <laughs> and so once you start into that argument, they'll love that argument. Once you start in that argument, then what happens is they don't have to deal with their own issues. And this is about their own issues for why they use alcohol or religion or whatever it is, that way, see. So my goal is to try to get them to get... I, I'm, not a, I'm not a nice person when it comes to... My goal is, is to try to do kind of an intervention and not argue any of this stuff with them. So how do you do that? Do I have, a, do I have a time? How do you do that real quickly? It's very easy to do it. First of all, you have to be willing to walk away when you just get sick of it, okay? Because nothing's going to... If you walk away, it's not going to 
the world is going to get bad or, or worse. The second thing is, you have to take responsibility for what you believe. And so the answer is, when someone says something you disagree with, unless you want to spend hours and hours working with them, the answer is, I know a lot of people agree with you, but I don't. That's it. And then you repeat it. Jump up and down the same place. But, 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 but what about Romans 1? I know a lot of people agree with you but I don't. But, 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 because getting into that argument is energizing for them because it keeps them from dealing with what they need that argument for. Keeps them dealing with the feelings with themselves, the feelings that, like, right-wing religion tells you you're a rotten person. I don't want to feel rotten, so I got to do that. So do you see what I'm saying? So it's you don't have to be an expert. Um, and I don't know, we're way out of time. Am I... I would say one more thing. An example of this is I will write, I write a lot of things on LGBTQ issues. And I'll get an email from someone who read something in the Detroit Free Press or something that I wrote. And it'll be a long email with all these Bible verses and things like that. You know, it's sort of like, okay, God, I'm in biblical studies. You think I didn't read this? But I don't say that. So it goes on and on and on. And they spent a lot of time. This is energizing them. Ah, yeah, yeah. So... How would I answer that? Well, as a religion professor, I answer it this way. Please understand that I have received your email. Notice I don't say thank you for it because I'm not thankful. <laughs> also, please understand I disagree with you at every point. Good luck in your journey, Robert N. Minor, PhD. <laughs> so, because I don't want to get into that argument with them because that, only, that doesn't get to what their real issues are, which are below that. So every single one of us can do that. Every single one of us can say, you know, I disagree with you totally. But, but, but what about, oh, well, you know I disagree with you totally, right? But what, 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 but I disagree with you totally. That's the answer. And that gets, that says, I'm not going to blame anything on anything. I'm going to take responsibility for my own place, and I expect you to do the same thing. That's kind of just one idea. Thank you for Thank you so much, Dr. including Miner. me today. I wish I could translate the words for you, but this is a really old poem, all the way from the ninth century, and it's all about love and missing your country. Hum <laughs> 
social support, and give back to their community. To find an Oasis gathering in your area, or for information about starting an Oasis, visit www.peoplearemoreimportant.org.